You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, and we'll begin in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should despise him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Ian, as Bob said, and it's my joy and privilege to serve as uh, one of the deacons in Coram Deo. And uh, some of you know uh, I am married and I have three 
beautiful little rebels at home that are six and under. And uh, something weird happened to me when I got married and had kids. Before I got married and before we had our first child, I could sit in a car in the passenger seat without any issue, as if I were driving. But for some reason, after we had our first child, Haven, if I was not driving, if I was sitting in the passenger seat and my wife was driving, I would start to get really nervous and really freaked out by the littlest things. I mean, she'd turn a corner and I'd grab for the arm. Um, I'd try to push the invisible brake that I thought was on my side to brake for her. And it's not like her driving got any worse after we had children that I know of. Um, In fact, she's probably a better driver than I am. But for some reason, something in me switched. It's like I didn't like the feeling of not being in control. I wanted to feel like my life and my family's life was in my hands. And it made me really uncomfortable and nervous to think that it wasn't. I think that's something that we all share in common. We want to feel like our life is essentially in our own hands, that we're in control. We want to feel like we're in the driver's seat. This morning, our big idea is that we are not in control of our own life. The big idea is that your life actually depends on the death and glory of another, and that other is the servant that we're going to hear about in Isaiah 53. If you're new to Quorum Deo or this is your first time visiting with us, we've been going through the Old Testament book of Isaiah for pretty much the entire year. And this morning, we're landing at the end of Isaiah 52 in one of the most famous passages, not only in the Old Testament, but in the entire Bible. So it's my great joy to be able to preach it to you this morning. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 52, if you have a Bible or a device. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, or he'll succeed at what he puts his hand to do. He'll prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So right off the bat here, Isaiah tells us about the servant. And if you've been tracking through Isaiah as we've gone along, gone along this isn't the first time we've heard about this servant. He's mentioned him in previous chapters. And it's kind of like that who am I game. You may have played this as a kid. Maybe you still play it as, a, as an adult. If you do, I'm not judging you. Um, the game is you, you put somebody's name on your head, and it can be a real person or it can be you know, a fictional character. And you don't know what name is on your forehead, and nobody else knows what name they have on their forehead. But you all can ask yes or no questions and try to figure out who you are. So you can say, am I a real person or am I make-believe? Am I still alive? And you ask these questions... And over time, by process of elimination, you figure out who you are, if you're good at the game, all right? So this is essentially what Isaiah is doing with the servant here. This is the fourth and final servant song in the book of Isaiah. And it's as if he is dropping hints along the way, kind of giving us clues about who this servant is. And then we get to Isaiah 53, and it just becomes explicit. It's like he peels back the curtain and he reveals to us who this shadowy servant figure is that he's been talking about. And he gives us the clearest view of who the servant is and what he's done for us. And so we see, without a doubt, explicitly, that this servant is none other than Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah uses a device throughout this passage to reveal to us, to kind of clue us in to who this servant is. And he does it by drawing a contrast. He contrasts the servant with the many, or the servant with us. And so we'll see that as we go through this. So pay attention to the pronouns as we go along here, okay? You've got to remember your grammar. All right. The big idea is that your life depends on the death and glory of the servant. And we'll see this in four ways. The first is that the servant was rejected so that you can be included. Let's pick up in verse 14 of chapter 52. It says, as many were astonished at you. So right after 13, we see this servant is high and lifted up and exalted, and then all of a sudden, Isaiah changes gears on us. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief." And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So look at this rejection imagery here. Over and over again, we see it. These kings are astonished at him. They're speechless as they look at him. He is disfigured. He's so marred. He's so abused that he's not even recognizable as a man. He's despised and rejected. Over the last few weeks, there's a new buzzword in our media and in uh, social media, and that word is Ebola. Uh, it's, It's difficult these days to open up a newspaper or turn on the news without hearing about Ebola. Even though there's only been a handful of confirmed cases in the United States, it's dominating the news. And although those cases are tragic for the people who have experienced that here, the, the epidemic in West Africa is a massive human tragedy. There's thousands of people who've been infected with the virus with no end in sight. And one of the terrible things about the Ebola crisis is that it's not only uh, painful and terrible for those who are infected by it and those who suffer and die from it, it's actually sort of spawned uh, additional uh, tragedies. And one of those is the tragedy of Ebola orphans. On October 16th, USA Today published an article that picks up on the Ebola orphan crisis. It says thousands of children are taking a double hit, losing parents to the fatal virus and then being shunned by relatives who fear they will catch the disease. The United Nations estimates the virus has orphaned nearly 4,000 children across the region. And that number could double in coming weeks. These children, many of whom aren't even infected with the virus, they're facing starvation and rejection simply because they were related to somebody who had it. Because no one wants to get close enough to them 
to care for them. They are being shunned by their own family members. And this is the type of rejection that the servant faces here in these first few verses of Isaiah 53. He's being treated as if he's infected with the deadly virus of sin. He's being shunned and rejected. He's being treated as if he's the one carrying the disease. And he becomes this horrifyingly shocking spectacle of disfigurement and abuse. And he suffers on the outskirts of town so that he can make those of us who really are infected with the virus of sin so that he can make us insiders. He becomes an outsider so we can become insiders. He's excluded from the community so he can bring us into the community. But the spectators here in this passage, they don't get who he is. They don't get what's going on here. They don't see that this man of sorrows that Isaiah is talking about, that he's not bearing his own sorrows. He's actually carrying their sorrows. So this is shocking, not only because we have this exalted servant that all of a sudden he's being abused and mistreated and suffering, but it's shocking because he's being rejected by the very ones whose sorrows he's carrying. But notice in verse 15 of chapter 52, at the end of the verse it says, For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So we see that the pronoun they is being used here for these spectators, these onlookers, right? But by the time we get down to verse 3 of chapter 53, it changes. It says, He was despised and we esteemed him not. Why is there this shift here from they rejected him to we despised him? What's going on? Isaiah doesn't allow us to sit on the sideline as spectators. He pulls us into this. He implicates us in what's going on with the servant here. It says, we esteemed him not. We rejected him. So how is that? How do we reject the servant? We reject him in the same way that these spectators did. They were scandalized by his suffering and his judgment because it didn't fit in with their paradigm. It didn't make sense to them. They viewed the world in basically the same way we do. The good are rewarded, the bad are punished. The moral are accepted, the immoral are rejected. And that's how we reject the servant. We reject the servant because we don't reckon with the depth of our own brokenness and sin. And so we don't really see the point of his suffering because it's not that bad. Or we reject him because we want to be our own saviors. But along comes this servant and he messes with us. He messes up the paradigm. He's the righteous one who is punished. He's the innocent one who gets crushed. And so we turn away. It doesn't make sense to us. And over against his rejection, we see our acceptance. Right? His rejection leads to our acceptance. His rejection is not just a senseless tragedy. He's he's not just another innocent victim on 2020 or Dateline. His death, his suffering is purposeful. 
He bears our grief, carries our sorrows. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. He is excluded so that you can be included. But we see that he's not only excluded so that you can be included, he was wounded so that you could be healed. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4 starts with the word surely, which kind of seems uh, soft in English, but the sense here is to our great surprise. We've just seen how the servant has been massively mistreated and abused. And now, all of a sudden, to our great surprise, we see that this wasn't for anything that he had done, but it was for our sake. It seems like he's just another criminal who's justly being condemned between other criminals for his own offenses. But we see here that he was not suffering for his own offenses. He was mortally wounded. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was trampled to death. He was crushed for our iniquity, for our bentness, for our being turned inward on ourself. The word for here in the verse, it's telling us that the servant's death is not just a heroic example for us. He's not just showing us how to bear up under circumstances. It's showing us that he is a substitute. He's standing in our place. And he's suffering for our transgressions, for our willful and rebellious violations of God's law. This is what theologians have called penal substitution. It's this idea, not that our sins caused his suffering, but that he suffered on account of our sins. Isaiah is using transactional language here. He, he says, upon him, upon the servant, was our chastisement. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's picking up on this idea of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, where the priests would take the animal and they would slaughter it, they'd put it on the altar, and then symbolically they would place the guilt of the people on the head of that sacrifice. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying that the Lord has taken the guilt of the people and placed it on him. The servant's account was free and clear, but he took on our debt. And we see that these wounds here are purposeful. They accomplish something. They're like the wounds of a surgeon who's cutting away at the flesh to tear out the tumor of cancer, right? But this cancerous tumor of sin is not his, and the healing that comes is not his. These wounds bring peace and healing for us. If you remember back in Genesis 4, we read the story of the first murder in human history. It's the story of Cain killing his brother Abel. And after he's done this, God comes to Cain and he says to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the earth. He tells Cain that he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth and that everybody who finds him is going to kill him. It's pretty bad news. 
And Cain, when he hears this from the Lord, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That word in Genesis 4 that's translated punishment in in English is the same word that's translated iniquity here in verse 6. And so we learn something really important from that story. And that's that our iniquity, our punishment, is too great for us to bear on our own. For many of us, one of the reasons that we lack the peace and the healing that Isaiah is talking about here, it's that we try to carry what Jesus has already borne for us. This this peace, this shalom that Isaiah is talking about is a restoration of a right relationship and a whole relationship to God. But we short-circuit this process because what we do is we stiff-arm the servant because we want to be our own saviors. We try to carry what he's already carried for us. It's as if he's invited us to the nicest restaurant in town and paid for our tab, and yet we bring a sack lunch along and eat it there. We stiff arm him and try to carry what he's already carried for us. And look at how comprehensive it is. He doesn't just carry our iniquity and our transgressions. He carries our sorrows and our griefs. Do you believe that? We try to carry our sin by doing penance, right? We try to carry it by, by doing all kinds of things. One of the ways we do it is by penance. We try to do good things to make up for the bad things we've done, right? Or we just wallow in our shame. Or we just hide and we try to pretend like nothing happened. And not only do we do this with our sin and with our, with our transgression, we do this with our sorrow and our guilt. We functionally live as orphans, by trying to face a harsh world alone, as if we don't have a heavenly Father who loves us, or a Savior who suffered with us, or a comforter who comes alongside us. Another reason we lack peace and healing is that we try to shift this burden of guilt and blame to our circumstances or to other people. We all do this. Look at verse 6 here. Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. So what he's doing is he's cluing us into this, this shared fallenness, this common sinfulness that we all experience. But he doesn't allow us to say, you know, that's just, everybody experiences this. In the next part of the verse, he says, we have turned everyone to his own way. And so he clues us into this fact that even though we share in a common fallenness, that we each individually choose to turn away from God. Our iniquity is our bentness. It's the the fact that our disposition is to turn away from God inward on ourselves. And we try to shift the blame to others, but we can't. If you've ever carried around a heavy pack for a long time, you've noticed that after a while, you start to move that pack around. You can't deal with it being in the same position. So you start to kind of shift it around on your shoulders, or maybe you walk a little differently and change your gait, or cinch that pack up in a different place to distribute the weight differently, because you can't bear up under that weight indefinitely. And that's exactly what we do with the weight of our guilt and shame. It's too heavy for us, so we try to shift that weight. We shift it to our circumstances by saying things like, I wasn't angry, I was just frustrated. That's one I like. I particularly like that one. Or we say things like, 
I wasn't gossiping. I was just venting. Or we say, she doesn't really understand my needs. Or they don't appreciate what I do. And what we're doing is we're trying to shift the guilt and the blame onto someone else. Because at our core, we don't believe that Jesus has carried the burden for us. Stop trying to carry what Jesus has already carried for you. If the weight of your guilt and shame and brokenness, if that crushed the almighty Son of God, what makes you think you can push out even one rep under that weight? The good news for people like us is that Jesus has carried our sin and guilt because it's too heavy for us to bear. That frees us to be honest about our sin. We can actually own up to it rather than downplaying it or making excuses for it or shifting the blame. The servant was wounded so you could be healed. And not only was he rejected so you could be included and wounded so you could be healed, He was treated as unrighteous so he could make you righteous. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So look at the servant's treatment here. Isaiah says that he was oppressed, afflicted, He experienced the judgment and the wrath of God being poured out on him to the point that it crushed him. He was cut off out of the land of the living. That's kind of a poetic way of saying he was killed. He was stricken, crushed. He was put to grief, and his soul experienced deep anguish. All of this mistreatment and judgment brings about an effect As I said, he's not just a heroic example here. The point of the passage isn't to give us an inspiring example of how we can bear up under our trials or how we can suffer sacrificially for the sake of others. It's not just vague comfort and hope about hope after despair or light after darkness. The servant's death here is not given to us as an example. It is substitution. Look at verse 11. This is one of the clearest statements of the atonement or the reconciling of us to God given in Scripture. The tail end of verse 11, it says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
So we see here the two sides of this atonement. Negatively, the servant takes our iniquity on himself, and positively, he imputes or he credits to us his righteousness. This is what Martin Luther called a wonderful exchange. A few years ago, I lived in California with my wife, and uh, I had some interesting conversations with a coworker out there. She had grown up in a Christian home, and in adulthood, she'd married a Muslim man and converted to Islam. And we had some really fascinating and interesting conversations about this exact topic, this idea of substitutionary atonement, because this was one of the sticking points for her in why she had turned away from Christianity. For her, she couldn't wrap her mind around why God wouldn't simply declare people forgiven, why someone would have to die in their place, why God wouldn't simply overlook their sin in an act of forgiveness. And she couldn't accept the fact that an innocent man would have to die and suffer for her sin. But what she was missing was that forgiveness is always costly. Think about it. Anytime you forgive someone, there's a little bit of death that's taking place there. You're having to die to that desire to take vengeance. You're having to die to being able to take back what you feel is rightfully yours. And you're having to put away the enmity that's there in forgiving, right? So in this act, God forgives, and he does so at great cost to himself by sending his own son to die in our place. She was missing that forgiveness is costly, and that God doesn't just unjustly sweep our sins under the carpet of history, that he actually steps into history, and he shows his love to us in HD by dying and suffering in our place. That's why this is such good news. God doesn't just overlook our sin. He actually suffers to do something about it. We all know at a deep level that we don't measure up. And that's why we spend our entire lives trying to in an infinite number of ways. We try to measure up. And that's why we're self-protective and defensive. That's why we try to hide in anonymity. Or we spend years in a gospel community without allowing ourselves to be truly known. We're trying to measure up. That's why we spin the truth and we paint ourselves in the most positive light possible. Because at our core, we know that we're unrighteous. We know that we don't measure up. And we long so much to be. Or at least to appear to be. But into the darkness of all of our hiding and all of our posturing... This servant comes along, and he shines the light of his righteousness. Only Jesus, looking at you and declaring to you righteous, has the power to rescue you from all of your futile attempts to measure up on your own. He was treated as unrighteous so he could make you righteous. But not only that, he was exalted so that you could share in his blessings. Look at the first verse that we read this morning, verse 13 of chapter 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then if you jump ahead to verse 10 of 53, 
It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So in this passage, it's bookended by the exaltation of the servant. In the very first verse, we see that he's high and lifted up. And then at the end, we see him dividing up the spoil. And in the middle of this is this horrific crushing, this horrific pouring out of the wrath of God on him. So how is it that he goes from that to this exaltation? In verse 8, we see that he's cut off out of the land of the living. And yet somehow when we get down to 10, he shall prolong his days. We've got this illusion, illusion to the resurrection here, that he dies and yet he prolongs his days. He lives. This same Jesus who suffered and died and was abused is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We are the servants, spoils of war. It seems kind of anticlimactic when we get to verse 12. We have him suffering, and then he's being exalted. And in verse 12 it says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And our first thought is, really? He's just carried the weight of our sin, been crushed, and he just gets to share in the spoils? But the real sense here is not that he shares in the spoils with the many and with the strong It's that the many and the strong are his spoils of war. We're the trophy of his victory over death and sin. We are the spoils of war that the servant captures. And not only that, we're his spiritual children, his offspring. Just as the natural fruit of marriage is offspring... Um, so the servant produces offspring here. We live in a fallen world where sometimes there's infertility and we don't have offspring, and that's the result of the fall and that's brokenness. But here we see that the servant's suffering, that the servant's exaltation after suffering brings about spiritual children. It says in verse 10, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The servant's suffering leads to his exaltation. The cross leads to glory, leads to resurrection. And this glory that the servant receives and that he experiences is something that he catches us up into, something that we inherit as his spiritual children, so we get the benefits of it. And we see that his death and resurrection here that it has ongoing implications. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, He bore the sin of many and now makes intercession for the transgressors. His death and resurrection have ongoing implications. Jesus' exaltation is good news for us. 
Why is that? Why is it good news that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father? It's because it rescues us from the impossible burden of being ultimate ourselves. We know that our self-exaltation always ultimately comes up empty. Real life and joy and blessing comes not from pursuing our own self-exaltation, but being caught up into Jesus' exaltation. He was exalted. He was lifted up so that you could share in his blessings. So we've seen that Jesus was rejected so that you could be included. He was wounded so you could be healed. He was treated as unrighteous so that you could be made righteous. And he was exalted so that you could share in his blessings. Your life doesn't depend on you. You don't have the steering wheel. Your life depends on the suffering and glory of another, of a substitute, of the servant, Jesus Christ. This is good news for us, but often it doesn't feel like good news. We receive this the way healthy white blood cells receive a pathogen. It's foreign and it's hostile to our system, and so we attack it. It doesn't fit in with our paradigm. I have to prove myself worthy. I have to prove myself worthy of inclusion, heal my own wounds, establish my own righteousness, make a name for myself, and secure my own blessings. And then along comes the servant, and he scandalizes us. In verse 13 of 52, the first verse we read, the first word out of Isaiah's mouth here is behold. That's the last imperative in this entire passage. That's the last command. He doesn't tell us to do anything else. So if you come to this text looking for action steps or moral advice, you're going to be really disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. All we can do is stand in awe at the paradox of, and, and awe at the grace of salvation. If you remember back to the story of the Exodus, where the children of Israel are at the Red Sea, and they've got the sea in front of them, and the armies of Pharaoh, who's changed his mind and isn't going to let them go, coming after them, and they're starting to freak out. And then Moses stands up in the midst of them, and he says, don't be afraid, Stand and see what the Lord's going to do. Watch and see he's going to fight for you. This is one of those moments. There's nothing for you to do. Stand and watch what God will do to save. The implication is that you cannot secure your own righteousness. That's why you're not given instructions. You can't secure your own healing and righteousness and blessedness. Substitution is is the scandal of the gospel. Because we don't want to substitute. We want to be our own saviors. And yet, that is exactly what we need. You need a substitute. You need somebody to stand in your place because you cannot carry the weight of your own sin and the weight of your own grief. Your life depends on the death and glory of the servant. So Isaiah 53 doesn't give us any action steps. It just reveals the servant to us. It lifts him up, and it calls us to worship him. And the implied question here is, won't you receive, won't you embrace this servant? 
Why would you try to carry the weight of your sin and your grief on your own when the servant has carried it? Many of you um, have received Christ. You have embraced the servant as your Lord. And so you know the freedom that comes in that. And yet you find yourself repeatedly trying to carry your own grief as if you're in it on your own or trying to carry the burden of your sin as if Jesus didn't carry that for you. For some of you, you've never experienced this. You don't know the freedom that comes in having someone stand in your place and taking the burden of sin for you. And Isaiah calls you to embrace the servant, to receive him. Let's pray. Father God, we stand in awe of this servant. Thank you that he stands in our place because we cannot bear the crushing weight of our own sin, of our own grief, of our own sorrow, of our own shame. And so we need this servant to stand in our place. Thank you that we don't have to stand before a holy and just God on our own merits, but that Jesus stood in our place so that we could be rescued. God, I pray that you would free us from our futile and vain attempts at trying to measure up. I pray that we would stop trying to shift that burden and that we would recognize that only you can carry it. Would you give us grace to believe and accept this servant? I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.